I'm your host, Amanda. Joining me today is my beautiful and gorgeous wife, Katie. (laughs) Oh, hi. Oh, hi. How are you doing today, Amanda? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm good. Uh, So what are... What's what are we doing here? What's going on? Well, I wanted to start this podcast because I wanted a nice, easy way to learn about queer history. There's a lot of stuff we didn't learn in school or even online. It's hard to find. And I just wanted a place where we could discuss different parts of our history with, you know, you know, just little tidbits of things that might not have been covered or going into pe- uh, people's lives that we don't get to discover the the gay side of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that's important um, as a part of our history, as our oral history, because a lot of it, our history is passed on through oral history because we don't get things in textbooks besides, like, Harvey Milk was a dude. Maybe. I didn't know about Harvey Milk until the movie <laughs> came out. So I know I am extremely ignorant when it comes to our history, and I know there's people who know definitely know more than I do, but this is more of a learning thing for me and hopefully for other people Mm -hmm. um, who don't have the experience and the knowledge of our history. Sounds, sounds good to me. Yeah. So, uh, what are we, what are we talking about today? Well, since we are both Philly gals. (laughs) Go birds. Go birds. Um, I want to start off with the annual reminders. Have you heard of that? <laughs> Actually, I have not. I had never heard of it until you started doing research for this, and I'm still not quite sure exactly all what went on. So I think this is a good. It's a good deep dive into that. Yeah, we have plaques around the city to like commemorate different people and different events, and this is one of them. It's right in front of Independence Hall. Walked by it probably dozens of times. No idea it existed. <laughs> Read the plaques, people. They're actually <laughs> helpful information. <laughs> a lot of people think that Stonewall was the beginning of our history. And it makes sense that that's the thing people focus on. It's a very integral part of our history. At least the, the civil rights part of our history, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, like that's where it started. But obviously it had to come from somewhere before that. It just did just appear out of nowhere. Right. So there's all these different organizations. You had the Machine Society, which opened their Philadelphia chapter in 1960. You know, it publishes newsletters and has social events. Um, The organization was founded in 1950, but in 1960 came to Philadelphia. Communist and labor activist Harry Hay formed a group with a bunch of his male friends in L.A., to improve the rights of gay men. So this was in 1950, mm-hmm. so almost like 20 years before Stonewall. It was the first LGBT organization in the city of Philadelphia. Mm. And the goals were to unify gay people. Obviously, people are very isolated this time for the interwebs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, educate people, gay people and straight people alike. You know, the more you know about a group of people that aren't themselves, the more you can identify and sympathize with them and they're not as other and vilified. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, leading, you know, the way so, you know, gay people can be in positions of power and leadership um, just to have diversity in those groups of people and just to help gay people who are victims of oppression. Mm-hmm. So this was 1960. 
But unfortunately, a year later, the National Machine Society dissolved, and the Philadelphia chapter became the Janus Society of the Delaware Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, so this includes men and women. One of the reasons why the previous organization was dissolved was because women were like, oh, hi. Oh. Here too. So the Mattachine? Yeah. That was just gay men? Originally, yes. Oh. That sucks. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's a good thing we don't have to worry about that anymore, right, guys? <laughs> um, so, the, what was unique about the Janus Society in Philadelphia was that there was a lot more lesbian leadership, and men and women worked together. Apparently, that wasn't necessarily the case across the country, and and especially having a dominant lesbian leadership was rare among different chapters. It, you know, they produced a magazine. You know, they were the ones who started the annual reminders. Okay. You know, they they focused on their main thing, and this is where a lot of people had split from them in the future, is their policy of militant respectability. Which <laughs> militant respectability? Yeah. It's a great phrase. I think it's a great phrase. It's, yeah. it's very interesting. Um, they wanted people, LGBT people in the public, to conform to heteronormative standards of dress. So I don't know if you know the answer to this, but this is a, a thought that just popped in my mind. So they wanted people to conform to the heteronormative standards, right? But does that mean that trans people were not included in this? I don't know. I don't think, at least not in recorded Hmm. Philadelphia history. Yeah. But I think the way of dress was that if you, I mean, even there was cases of, you know, butch lesbians and being told to put on a dress when you were protesting because gays are just like us right type you know thought process so i'm not entirely sure interesting okay about that i will have to look into that that's a very interesting question so at the same time an organization called the daughters of bilitis also called the dob (laughs) dob (laughs) was the first lesbian civil and political rights organization in the united states and was formed in philadelphia oh wait no i'm sorry it was formed in San Francisco. That makes sense. In 1955, as a social alternative to lesbian bars. Oh, all right. Because they wanted to hang out, and also a lot of these bars were subject to raids and you know police harassment. So they're like, hey, let's hang out non-bar, and then maybe cops won't bother us. Right. Which seemed to work, at least a little bit. The name came from a fictional lesbian contemporary of Sappho uh, by the French poet... A French poet. Uh-huh. But I cannot pronounce his name because I don't know French. Ooh, try it. Pierre Louis. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure that is not correct. Okay. Um, but it's from his 1984. 1984? 1894. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. <laughs> Sometimes I have numeric issues. Um, called The Song of Bilitus. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1956, they began to print a newsletter called The Ladder, which was the first nationally distributed lesbian publication in the United States. Oh. 
and the first one to publish statistics on lesbians. So this is all from the group in San Francisco? Or is yes. this Okay, gotcha. But they eventually came to Philadelphia Got as it. part of the evolution of the Janus Society as well. Gotcha. And they were more of the arm of the rights movement that didn't believe that people should have to conform to those you know, dra- norms of dress. Mm-hmm. Um, but the statistics was interesting because a lot of the publications, even the rare ones that you had about gay people in the 50s and 60s were obviously about gay men mm-hmm. because women don't count as people, obviously. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Again, good thing we've moved past that, right, guys? <laughs> um, so having that as something, like, through mailed surveys, so it wasn't something skewed by, like, junk science or religious organizations. It was something actually, you know, the first actual pool of lesbians being, you know, self-research. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah. So while all this was going on, 1962, Philadelphia. Philadelphia Police Commissioner Frank Rizzo. If you're not from Philadelphia, you probably don't understand what a terrible person he was. <laughs> but if you're from Philadelphia, you know exactly who I'm talking about. <laughs> now, before I started doing this research, I knew he was a terrible person for his terrible racist activities. And, you know, obviously that would transcend to gay people, but not commonly talked about, not something I actively thought about. He was a garbage person, racist, so that was the end of it. Right. Also, very homophobic, unsurprising. <laughs> he would instruct bar owners to not serve drag queens under the penalty of losing their liquor license. Oh. The gayborhood was known as the gay ghetto. So that was fun. Mm. Um, and most of the bars were hidden on smaller side streets to avoid the raids. A lot of these bars were mob-owned, um, but they were raided all the time anyway because he wanted to clean up the area. There was points where they would have bars um, flick the lights on and off knowing that, they would, that the police were coming and people would find... Like, women would find male partners and vice versa to start dancing with. Right. And then they're like, oh, it's a straight bar, so we're fine now. <laughs> These are obviously all heterosexuals. <laughs> Fooled ya. We are all okay here. <laughs> to the point they got dubbed as Rizzo's Raiders because it was so notorious at the time that they picked on people who looked obviously gay, unsurprisingly. Um, they would take them to the station, harass them, and then release them the next day. Apparently, according to some uh, publications, he was they were particularly harder on lesbians than gay men. But I mean, he was they were harassing everyone. It was just bad all around. <laughs> it was not good. Yes, especially because being gay in Philadelphia was criminalized in the fifties and sixties. Mm. So that was also. Uh, difficult, you know, but whenever they had to, like, socialize, if people out of them, they would lose their jobs, face jail time, all these raids, it just, 
was bad. Right. So because of all this, the East Coast homophile organization, a lot of the time they use the word homophile because it deviated away from homosexual and seen as something that was a sexual thing. Right, so but it almost sounds it almost sounds worse. It it does, <laughs> I think, now. Yeah. But I could understand at the time where like, well, we should avoid the word sex in their name. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah. I mean it's not it's it's not great, however you want to use it. But, <laughs> but it was called Echo, so I think they kind of So like, East Coast Homophile Organization. Okay. Okay was founded in 1963 in Philadelphia. That was formed from the Janus Society, the Machine Society, and the different chapters of Daughters of Bilitis. So all these organizations kind of formed... Supergroup. A supergroup. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like the Justice League <laughs> of gays. Okay, Justice League? Yes. Gotcha. It didn't last very long. Oh. It was three years. Okay. But they were also responsible that... The part of the Daughters of Bilitis and Jazz Society of Echo was responsible for the annual reminders. Mm-hmm. So it was important to start it, but you just had a lot of differing opinions on how you should protest or if we should protest mm-hmm. or just basically how we should be as gay people. The concept of being a being gay as a political identity was fairly new at the time as a larger macro concept. Obviously, mm-hmm. they were it was political and people felt it before that, but kind of actually stating it and recognizing it as we need to have a political movement as a whole group of people. So you know, started in with these organizations in the fifties and sixties and realizing, especially because of the civil rights movement, that it was possible to organize and be political and have people see them for who they are and deserving of basic human rights. Right. So one of the first public protests before that annual reminders Mm -hmm. um, began with a sit-in on April 25th, 1965, Mm -hmm. um, in a diner called Dewey's near Rittenhouse Square, which was where a lot of gay people like to hang out. They refused to serve customers who appeared gay or lesbian or were wearing gender nonconforming clothes. <laughs> so I'm assuming that also, you know, drag queens, yeah. trans people. There was 150 customers that had been denied service. So people had a sit-in for a couple of days, you know, handing out leaflets and all that stuff. And eventually they started serving them again. People saw what the NAACP was doing in the South, and they're like, we can, it's powerful, and it's effective, and it's making a valid and loud point. So they also tried to do that, and it was successful. They were able to get, you know, served again after that. What was great about this was that no arrests were made. Oh, that's nice. And it resumed serving. Peaceful protests ended up getting... The result they wanted. Yes. Oh. Not too long after the sit-in, that is when the first annual reminder was. It was on every 4th of July in front of Independence Hall mm-hmm. um, from 1965 to 1969. They protested anti-sodomy laws, firing of gay people from federal employment, 
and exclusion from the military service. They were told to dress professionally and to conform to gender expectations, which not a lot of people liked, but that's what they did. Activists saw protests in front of the White House in 1965, and they realized that Independence Hall was a great place to protest in front of because it was the birthplace of our nation and life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. And also we have the Liberty Bell, which is really cool, but also a great symbol to protest in front of and be a part of because it's literally the symbol of liberty in our country. Mm -hmm. So obviously gay people want life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness and having these protests in front of the building where it was, that idea was created they seemed it seemed to be very effective there was it varied from year to year how many people there were out there uh, first year it was just a couple dozen i think at one point there was a hundred people hmm. so it did grow the last one of course was in 1969 mm-hmm. um a week or two after stonewall they decided to still hold it and but soon after recognizing that what was coming out of the stone wall and needing to commemorate stonewall was more important for the movement mm-hmm. and kind of moving in that direction so that's why it only lasted for four years you know these protests were the first time that the queer political identity became a recurring concept obviously there's protests in front of the white house obviously these things existed before but having a continual on this day Mm -hmm. we're protesting this because of who we are that was that was new and interesting and it was in philadelphia which i think is really cool yeah that's that's really cool that our city kind of helped spearhead some of the gay rights movement and it's something that i had never heard of before so yeah despite its beginnings in the 50s and 60s and frank rizzo city of philadelphia has been pretty progressive in protecting gay people we have the office of lgbt affairs which i think was the first of its kind in the country at least in its inception Hmm. it has evolved since then which could be a whole other topic (laughs) <laughs> um, you know worker protections the, the city is very generally forthcoming and progressive when it comes to gay rights and i think a lot of it has to do with the origins of the gay rights movement being embedded in the city hmm. yeah so that's that's the annual reminders pretty cool we definitely should check out the, the... yeah we still haven't gone even though literally <laughs> how many times have we gone to past like walk past it yeah yeah we really should check that out and you know it's one of those things where you know in philadelphia every third grader goes to old city as a field trip goes to independence hall and the plaque was there when we went you Mm -hmm. know it's not like we were third grade that long ago and uh well well in the 90s we were (laughs) 90s kids and that's obviously not something we were talking about. I went to Catholic school. <laughs> Let me just <laughs> clarify that. And I know that gay history was erased from 
school in general, but I feel like being someone who went to Catholic school for 13 years, there was so much history, uh, gay and otherwise, that was just completely withheld from me. Right. And, you know, walking past a plaque that it was a part of the city's history and just not acknowledging it or like seeing it for what it was frustrates me but (laughs) this is why we're doing this so people know about it this is the goal right so well that was a very interesting story thank you yeah thanks for telling me yeah that's you know that's our show for this is the first episode it was i think it was pretty good mandy thank you yep Well, if you have any questions or comments, you can email us at queersdidthat at gmail.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter at queersdidthat. So until next time, make history A and make a history. Bye. We'll fix it in post. <laughs> It'll all be fixed in post. Yeah. I don't know how to do that, but I guess I'll learn. We'll fix it.